Hey guys, welcome back. We got a presentation for you here. Don't get too excited. Psychology of 19th century philosophy. Or how to identify with the irrational. Or we'll get to it how to identify how to uh, integrate those mom life comics that have been going around the internet. So we'll get to that later. There's timestamps in the description here. So if you just want to jump ahead and, and see my reaction to those, you can, you can do that. I get it. Or if you want to uh, fall asleep, then listen until then. I mean, pe people may think that I'm being like self-deprecating when I say this podcast puts you to sleep. No, I'm complimenting myself. I think that's a good thing. You're comforted because you know that my thoughts, my words are accurate. It's It creates this structure, this comforting structure, so it feels safe to fall asleep. I uh, I would take that as a compliment. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about. Identification with the irrational. We, we do free consultations, animusempire.com slash schedule. We do therapy. If you want to learn more about what we do, just reach out. Tell us. Tell us what's going on and we can help you out. Okay, so the outline is part one. We're going to talk about context, which I think means historical context. Yeah, we're going to talk about historical context of the 19th century the philosophy of the 19th century. Part two, we're going to talk about how to identify with somebody else. You know, I just think it's a, you know, I, I complain about therapy a lot and, and modern psychology and how we just don't get fundamental principles, right? I think one of those, or it's not one a fundamental principle of psychology, but a symptom of the fact that we don't get fundamental principles, right, is group therapy. Everybody looks down on it. It seems, it seems kind of like a, a consolation prize in therapy. The real work that you do is one-on-one -on -one therapy, and group therapy is just the side thing. And I think in part that's that's because group therapy is run in, in a poor way. And I, I think probably if I had to guess, 85 95% of group therapy is psychoeducation. It's a class. You don't, you're not processing emotions. And I think that's... That's too bad. So part of this is going to be how to identify, how to identify specifically with uh, explicitly irrational philosophers of the 19th century of Schopenhauer, Marx, and Nietzsche. And then we're going to go to a modern example of that, how to identify. Oh, that's part six. Let me fix that. That's part six. The modern example will be the mom life comic. How do we, how do we identify with this? How do we integrate this thing called Mom Life Comic that, you know, it's popular for a reason. It's popular for a reason. The problem, yeah, so I guess the problem before we get to part one, the historical context, you know, just to lay it out here is the problem is there is some kind of cultural divide. Disagreements, of course, lead to fractured relationships. Of course, COVID, elections, abortion relationships in general, mom life comics. We're going to talk about that. So we have these disagreements in our culture is what I'm trying to say. This is nothing new, but just to be clear about what we're talking about here, the context for this discussion, for this presentation, we have, we have disagreements in culture and in our personal relationships, and it leads to fractures. Well, I'm just not going to talk to that person anymore. I'm going to cut that person out of my life, right? That person has bad vibes. I'm going to, I'm going to cut them out of my life. This, that person has that view of uh, COVID, elections, abortion. How could they possibly be rational? They are demonic. 
There is something about them that I simply must be avoided. I cannot relate with them in any way. And I'm not saying, I'm probably going to say this a bunch throughout this presentation. I'm not saying that your views on the COVID election abortion are wrong. Maybe they're right. But does that mean that you cut out people who disagree with you? I think that's an extra leap that we're going to talk about here. Okay. And I guess when I'm talking about this in general, 19th century philosophy and, and the mom comics is these are actually two questions that I received. So let's uh, combine them into one presentation. The psychology of 19th century philosophy. What are these guys talking about? Really, even though they may not know it. And what do you think of these mom comics going around? So part one is the historical context for this. What do I mean by historical context? Well, first, why are we talking about the 19th century? Yeah, that's a question from a listener I just said. And I think the 19th century is important because at least when it comes to philosophy, it was the beginning of the end. It was a secularization of the irrational. You know, before, before the 19th century, we had a religion that's one side, the, the, the religious idealist that was one side of the philosophical coin Oh, you know, I'm trying this with my uh, face here, and it might cover up. Oh, maybe if I put it here, that might be better. Maybe if I put it here, that might be better. Can I make this smaller? No. All right, sorry about that. I'll, I might just move it around. Okay, so the 19th century philosophy at the beginning of the end. This is when philosophers became uh, avowedly irrational. There was irrationalism in philosophy before, but there was some kind of basis for it. Now, in the 19th century, it became avowedly irrational. So it was when philosophy was lost. And I think this loss of philosophy was aggravated by um, advancement in civilization. Right? It, it's the uh, sorry. It's the thing that Star Trek talks about you can't have your wisdom get too far away from your technology. You know, you can have a primitive, uh, savage kind of, re of, of, of wisdom, of religion, of philosophy. Uh, and that's fine. You can't really do much with it. But, but if you combine advanced civilization with primitive philosophy, then you get stuff like the, uh, like concentration camps, right? So, yeah. Civilizations began to look like this. This is, you know, 19th century New York. Just grow exponentially, but philosophers look like this. Here's Schopenhauer. I don't know what he's doing. <laughs> what, what, what are you doing with Schopenhauer? Uh, you know the meme where, where you, you, you lean in? Where it's like, oh, the, the guy's leaning into the girl too much, or the girl's leaning into the guy. This predicts the... Uh, the success of the relationship. Yeah, you could do that here with Schopenhauer leaning into nobody. <laughs> leaning into absolutely nobody as indicative of he just doesn't have a firm foundation to stand on. So yeah, civilizations like this, philosophers look like this, and then we get this. Just stacks of bodies from, uh, that's I think World War One or World War Two. You know, it's interesting because we talk about the 20th century being the bloodiest century and it is not because there were more wars there aren't more wars it's just the, this philosophy of the past not uh not growing right not developing 
at the same rate as technology. So we get these, uh, get just, just piles, a hundred million people died at least, you know, and, and who even knows? I mean, a hundred million people could have been killed in China alone in the 20th century. We don't know. It's probably more like 50 or 60 million, but it, it's one of those things. It could have been a hundred million. It could have been 40 million more people. 40 million. You know, three kids die in some school shooting and yeah, like let's be horrified by that. But I, I mean, 40 million. It, it, you, you can't wrap your mind around it. So you just think, oh, 40 million. Wow, that's bad. Anyways, moving on. I don't blame you for doing that. You just can't wrap your mind around it. Okay, so therefore, the point is we learn nothing, right? And, and I come from a philosophical background. We learn nothing when we just call these philosophers irrational. And it, it, it aggravates the ultimate problem of there is something going on here. Why are these philosophers, and, and they, they're avowedly irrational. Schopenhauer, Marx, Nietzsche, that they'll tell you that they're irrational. So what if we just call them irrational, we learn nothing. All we do is say, they're, you're wrong, we're right, but it doesn't matter, as indicated by this picture, because their ideas won out. This picture is uh, stacks of dead bodies. Their ideas won out. So it doesn't do anything when we just call them irrational. And I would argue that if we take a psychological lens to 19th century philosophy or irrationalism in general, there is nutrition in there. And there I have a, a paraphrase from Jung, a quotation from Jung. All you need to overcome the neurosis is in the neurosis itself. So there is nutrition in, I think, the, the irrationalism of, the, of these 19th century philosophers that will help us overcome, you know, the, the 100 million dead bodies in the 20th century and maybe even understand and work through uh, these mom life comics. Maybe if I move my face up here, I don't know. And of course, yeah, we're still in this predicament today. You know, there's this huge technological advancement, you know, but we know that like who's in charge, what's going on. Why do we just send $43 billion to Ukraine? What, you know, life is way too difficult. I would say we have this huge technological advancement. We'd think that life would be easier, but it should become too difficult considering the technological advancement that we have. You know, now if we had no technological advancement or if we kept going backwards or everybody was a Luddite, Luddite, and then we, and then life was difficult, that would be an obvious answer. Okay, yeah, we just don't have the technology, but that's not what's going on. And I think we need to, to just further clarify the fields of a psychology and philosophy. Uh, it, it'll just help us to distinguish what's going on. It'll help us to relate and to identify and to grow and to ultimately look at the nutrition in the so-called irrationalism of the 19th century that still very much influences us today. Okay, so part two. I'm going to talk about this is kind of uh, taking a step to the side here, and then we'll get back to the philosophy. But I just want to talk about how to identify how to identify with somebody who you may, in fact, even disagree with. So, like I was saying, there's a big difference between philosophy and psychology. 
and it's very rare where either a philosopher or a psychologist or therapist will distinguish between these two. So some examples of this is you, uh, okay, so excuse me. So just to define these, if you've uh, listened to two and a half of my videos, you probably know philosophy is your relationship with reality, while psychology is your relationship with yourself. And they are two very different things. Let's look, just look through some examples here to figure out what's going on. When your wife says, and this may indicate what's going on with these mom life comics, when your wife says, you never show me any affection, and your response is to point out specific examples where you show her affection, and, it, and let's say it's objectively shown that you show her plenty of affection. Right? This is an indication of the disparity, not the disparity, but the, the failure to distinguish between philosophy and psychology. Your wife is having a psychological discussion. You are having a philosophical discussion. She is saying, look at me, look at my relationship with myself. Look at your relationship with yourself implicitly and by extension, my relationship with myself. You are looking at reality. No, look, I, I gave you a hug last week. Uh, the average husband uh, hugs their wife 3.4 times a day. And, uh, you know, I, I made a, an Excel document that shows I hug you six times per day. Uh, therefore, I show you more affection. Right. And we can look at this wife and say, oh, she's being irrational. I don't know. Is she? She's being irrational from a philosophical perspective. Yes. From a psychological perspective, you're the one being irrational. This comes up in therapy a lot. When a client talks about his past, he oh, can be concerned. Oh, well, I don't know if this is true. This is how I experienced it. This is what I thought my dad did to me. But I don't know. You know, I was four. I was five. I was six. I can't be sure. And of course, the if I was a philosopher, I would say, well, we got to talk with your dad and figure out exactly what went on and, and actually hold a court. Let's take this to trial. Let's take this to a civil court and figure out exactly what went wrong. We'll call in witnesses. We'll look at any video evidence of, of that time. We're going to analyze the micro expressions on your face and your dad's face of maybe not this time, but just videos from around this time to figure out exactly what went on. And that could be helpful from a philosophical perspective, but this is psychology. If you're in therapy, it doesn't matter what was true, what really happened. All that matters is your feeling about what happened. Because if there's a problem with your feeling, if let's say there's resentment with your father, does it matter if the resentment's quote unquote true? No, of course, because let's go, or of course not, because let's go back to the Jung quotation of the answer to the neurosis is in the neurosis itself. We can talk about transubstantiation. And, oh, you eat this cracker and you really think it becomes the literal body of Christ in your body? Oh, this is so ridiculous. Philosophically, this is, uh, duh, duh. you know, and, you know, all these, oh, if, uh, if Adam and Eve are the first humans, why do they have belly buttons? You know, you know stuff like that. Uh, just not looking at religion, looking at religion as a, philosophy not something that can be psychologically true because you're not distinguishing between those two. Oh, god is just a dead white man in the sky how could that possibly be right and this is what i say about Jung again at the end of his life when he was asked does god exist and he says i don't believe god exists 
I know God exists. And as an avowed atheist, I know God exists. Philosophically, I can say God doesn't exist. Psychologically, I know God exists. I know. It's as clear as day to me. Because I can distinguish between philosophy and psychology. And this is what I'm challenging you to do here. Whether it's reading 19th century philosophy, relating with your wife, your girlfriend, any woman, even if that woman happens to be living in Cape Cod making comics. And then, of course, the Navajo drum sunrise ceremony, which Jung talks about and I love because, you know, it's uh, you got to get up early and beat the drum because beating the drum makes the sunrise. Is that is that uh, philosophically true? We, we would say uh, idiomatically, is that literally true? No, of course not. That's that's ridiculous. But that that, you know, I know. I know that the guy who needs to get up in the morning to beat the drum and he ooh, be bit better wake up for the sunrise, uh, you know, early enough, excuse me. <laughs> oh, you can see my Western perspective bleed in here. You, you better wake up early enough to beat the drum in time for the sunrise. Cause if he doesn't do that, the sun doesn't rise. I know that guy doesn't have OCD because he is a part of that ritual. Um, even though, of course, the drum doesn't make the sunrise, right? So we understand the difference here. Do we understand what's going on? Of course, this has been popularized in this video. I think from 10 years ago, it's not about the nail. You know, the video, if you're just listening to this, the video is of this woman who has a nail in her forehead. And she wants to talk about her emotions around the nail. The guy just wants to fix the nail. He's like, it's like well, let's just get a, a hammer. Let's get some pliers and pull the nail out. And she wants to talk about the nail, what it means, what she's feel, what she feels about having a nail in her forehead. Is she ridiculous? She's only ridiculous if you don't understand what psychology is and how important it is for us. How, how important it is for our survival. For, no, not for our survival, for our ability to thrive and connect and relate with each other because that's what, you know, we have plenty of food. I know we're freaking out over food shortages. Yeah, we have plenty of food, especially in the context of history. But we are disconnected. That is the real famine. The, the emotional connection famine. And when you understand that, you go back and watch this video of the woman who has a nail in her forehead and you're laughing at her, you don't get it. He's the one who's being ridiculous. Also, this is popularized. If you guys aren't from the 90s, go and, and watch the movie White Men Can't Jump. Not only because it's a perfect movie, and I think just the epitome of uh, race relations in America, but there's this great scene when uh, Woody Harrelson's girlfriend, Rosie Perez, is, is thirsty. She says, hey, I am thirsty, so he gets up and gets her a glass of water. And she's like, no, I, I didn't want a glass of water. I just wanted to talk with you about thirst and what it means relate with me about being thirsty and she turns over and i remember <laughs> i remember thinking that you know i was probably 12 or 11 when this movie came out i'm thinking man i really want uh rosie prez to be my girlfriend i remember thinking that because she just seemed crazy and awesome and of course i couldn't put it into words at the time uh you know, I think a part of the scene you can see part of her boob, which I think you only notice if you're 
11 or 12 or your testicles dropped a week and a half prior. And then you notice these things. Maybe that's why I wanted her to be my girlfriend. But I just felt there was some, there was some powerful, awesome nutrition there. And, you know, maybe this is me projecting back. That's fine. I do that. But there's just some powerful, awesome nutrition there when he does the most logical thing and he's being a good boyfriend. Yeah, I'll get you a glass of water. And she's like, no, you don't get it. You're wrong. And she gets upset at him. I just love that. So how do you identify? How do you identify with somebody else? This is the uh, autism spectrum disorder guide to identification. I know there may be some females watching this thinking, oh my God, you got to explain how to identify. Well, I think, you know, don't, don't, don't get too all high and mighty, uh, any woman out there listening to this or watching this, you, you, you lapse in, in a few of these steps as well, you know, but here's how you do it. Uh, and, and this applies to group therapy, of course, but this applies to any social situation. I never know what to say when I'm talking to somebody. Of course, that's what we say when we have social anxiety. I never know what to say. I never have anything to say. Even though you have this human in front of you who has uh, an infinite array of experiences that you can identify with, that you can relate with. Find out more about them. Keep asking them questions. Relate. Relate when they talk. And here's how you do it. When they say anything, when this other person out there says anything, this is like a robot's instruction manual, <laughs> like infiltrating earth and, <laughs> and coming off like you're like, or an alien coming off like you're a human. Here's how you do it. No matter what somebody says, there is an emotion behind what they say. So you ask, and you don't need to come up with an answer necessarily, but you ask, when have I felt this way before? What was my feeling? What was the situation in which I felt this? Yeah, and what was my feeling in this situation? How do I interpret this feeling? What, what is my subjective psychological garnish that I put on this feeling that this person shares with me when they talk, even if they're simply talking about a grocery list or, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. What do you need? Now, of course, in that situation, obviously, you tell them what you need, but not, but you can, you know, be philosophically true while identifying. So when have I felt this way before? What was the situation in which I felt this? What was my feeling in this situation? And this is when therapy becomes in handy, because then you do the next two steps, you can do them really well. Why did I have this feeling? Or why do I have this feeling in general? doesn't have to be about the situation or that you thought of it could be why do i have this feeling in general and then how is this feeling my responsibility which is key right because why don't guys like to talk about their emotions because it makes them look gay of course it makes you look gay and you have the right to be afraid of that gay weak i mean gay like the way the way uh, middle schoolers use it and you have the right to be afraid of that it's okay to fear things that make you weak. So how do you talk about emotions without being weak? Well, you take responsibility. You understand fully on, on a bunch of different levels how every emotion you have is your responsibility and you can describe it 
not rationalize it, but just but describe it factually. You can describe it in a bunch of different ways at the drop of a hat. This is why therapy matters. And if you can't do that, I, I you don't you know you, not everybody needs therapy. But if you can't do that, if you can't describe why you have each feeling without you know any positive or negative connotation, this is why I have the feeling. This is where it comes from. This is how it's my responsibility. Got to do that 10 different ways at a drop of a hat. That's what we can help you with in therapy. Or simplified, how to identify is you connect over the emotion and then you take responsibility for the emotion. Right? So what you're doing here, you know, it's this subtle dance that I can't describe all the different particulars of because it just involves an infinite array of emotional states and connections. And of course, each situation is different. The politics of each situation is different. You, you know, the, the context, whether you're talking with somebody at a, at a cocktail party or at work at the lunch table, whether you're talking with your boss or somebody who you manage, it's just, there's an infinite array, but this is the general outline. And I don't care how autistic you may be. You do this enough. You just practice this enough and, and you'll get there. It, it just becomes more and more obvious what's going on. So when something like a mom life comment comes up and you, and you get all triggered and you say, oh, I can't believe I took this a privileged woman. And there's a little bit less of that. Not not to spoil where we're going here, but then it might be a little bit less of that. But a simplified what we're doing is we're connecting over the emotion and taking responsibility for it. That's how you identify. And where do I get these steps? I'm pulling this out of my ass. Perhaps. But this is what the emotional diagrams say. Nope. The need or the injustice. It comes in and you feel an emotion. Or some situation out there causes an emotion. It doesn't cause necessarily. But just to simplify it, we'll say it causes the emotion. It's either anger or there's anxiety here. right? There's some situation. right? That's what we talk about up here. What's the situation? What's the feeling? Don't just say anger or some variation, compassion, hostility, sadness, depression. How do you, what is the feeling? How do you put it in your own words? And then what's the next step? Ask why, why do I have this feeling? What are we doing there? Well, we're just making the unconscious conscious. And you get really good at this. You can ask yourself three whys, four whys. Go as many whys deep. It's fascinating. Why do I feel this uh, confusion? Because well, I'm not really sure what I want. Why am I not sure what I want? Well, because I don't talk about this often. Why don't I talk about this often? Because I think it makes me look stupid when I talk about it. Why do I think it makes me look stupid? Because I you know, come from this uh, this culture, you could say. Right. And then this is where you can start to, you know, put quote unquote responsibility and other things outside of yourself. I come from this culture. You know, when I was five, I was indoctrinated in this culture where you couldn't talk about A, B, and C. That's why the next step, of course, is, you know, you see it there, responsibility. How do you come out of hostility or even sadness and depression ultimately? Or how do you make the unconscious conscious is you, you take responsibility for it. Okay, I, I come from this culture, but I perpetuate that now because I want to perpetuate it. Because if I don't take responsibility for something, you know, if I just blame my culture, then it, I don't have to, to do everything that I can possibly do to manage this issue. It makes me feel comfortable. Maybe not comfortable, but familiar. It's this familiar feeling I go to. 
and I can use it to justify my stagnation. And now you're back here uh, in, in the emotionally healthy. You feel an emotion. You're conscious of it. All the unconscious information that you can be aware of at the time, you know, all the stuff here in sadness, depression with anger or, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, helplessness with anxiety. You can bring it up to the surface. And you can share it. That's what a connection is. Right, that's what identification, that's what a connection is, is yes, there's this way I present on the surface, right? There's this persona, which is healthy to have a persona, of course. But how healthy is it? Well, it's healthy to the extent to which it it's like uh you know, it's like your ego, it just serves as a focal point for your unconscious. And connection is getting more and more rays of light in, into that lens, into that focal point that is your persona, is your ego, is your conscious self, and how and, and how can you share that with other people in a healthy way? So that's where we get how to identify from. It, it's built right into these emotional diagrams. Well, where do I get the emotional diagrams from? Well, read the book, and I think I break it down to first principles there. Okay. So that's how to identify. So let's practice identification with 19th century philosophers. You know, if I was going to do a skit about this, I would have some guy dressed up as Schopenhauer, Marx, and Nietzsche, and I would be there, and we'd be in group therapy together, and they would be talking about their views, and I would be trying to relate with just like a dumb guy who's trying to do his best in group therapy, and it might be funny, maybe not. Okay, so what does Schopenhauer say? Those are his dates there, 1788 to 1860. I mean... He says a lot more than this, but I'm just going to break it down to three points. I get this mainly from my notes on philosophy. You can download those from, from the website in the store tab. Uh, and there's three, his three main points. Sorry, my kid's crying. One is intuition. Two is will as reality. And three is renunciation. Okay, so these are his three points. That, that he, that Schopenhauer is one of these guys who admit that this is irrational. His beliefs are rational, but so what? You just got to deal with it. Okay, well, let's identify with this. What does intuition mean? That reality is something that you simply know. You have these intuitions about reality, and, and there's no explanation possible or necessary. Either you get it or you don't. To put it in meme form, if you know, you know. And that's it. I mean, Schopenhauer, in a sense, is taking a very unphilosophical view to philosophy. He is wiping out the field of epistemology, what I would argue to be fundamental <laughs> to the field of why philosophy even exists is because there's thing, there's this branch of it called epistemology that asks the question, how do we know what we know? And he wipes it out. He, he admits that he's being uh, irrational. And of course, I mean, that this, it rings true. This rings true for a lot of people. Like the mom life comics, no matter how rational they, they may be, it rings true. Is, does it ring true because uh, he uh, has great grammar? No. <laughs> go, go read Schopenhauer. It's awful. Does, does the mom life comics ring ring true because it's great art? No. It's, it's terrible art. I think it's a tracing that she does. So that's not it. Hmm. So this must say something very true about psychology. Not just Schopenhauer's psychology, but all of our psychology.
something that we all may go through. Hmm, I wonder what it is. First, let's go to will as reality. So will is this avowedly irrational thing. And the goal is in a sense to break our own will. Part of that please another third thing, renunciation. We must renounce our desires to achieve nirvana. Here we see some Eastern mysticism influencing Western philosophy. Of course, not the first time Eastern mysticism influenced Western philosophy. The first time, of course, is stoicism. But it's always been in the background there. So how do I relate? Okay, so I'm sitting in group therapy with Schopenhauer. Here's how I relate. When he talks about intuition, and, and if you know, you know, and if you get it, you get it, and if you don't, you don't, there's nothing we can say. How have I felt this way before? In what situation? I, you know, I remember a time, and, and I still do this when I scroll through Twitter, when somebody is wrong and I just feel that they're wrong and they may in fact be philosophically wrong. And man, it sure does feel good to just call somebody wrong and to say you're right, doesn't it? It sure does deal with any, the emotion here I think is one of anxiety, confusion of dealing with the complexities of reality. Boy, it sure does feel good to say, yeah, you're just wrong and I'm right. And so this is something that I would say in seventh or eighth grade, which I'm sure it was really endearing to everybody. <laughs> I would, I remember saying this is, oh, that's what you think. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's your right to be wrong. That's okay. You, you could be wrong. It's totally your right as an American to be wrong. If you want to, I appreciate that you can express this right that you have to be wrong. I mean, I would say this to the teachers. I mean, just, you know, God. Seventh grade boys are, are are so annoying, but but it's beautiful, right? Like it's captured in Beavis and Butthead. Okay, so I did this a lot in seventh grade. I still do this now, especially when I'm tired and and I you know I, I have resentment of other issues, and I just want to, in a sense, dismiss people. It's easy and it's fun to do, because now you don't have to manage that anxiety of engagement. Or will is reality. Uh Will as reality, will as inherently irrational. And you need to, in a sense, break your own will. Of course, this is what we feel whenever I want to wuss out. You know, if I'm doing legs or, or whatever, if I'm doing squats or deadlifts and I think, oh, I don't want to do this. Um, I have this will in me telling me to wuss out and I need to, in a sense, break this will. You know, this is the Jocko willing. Where does discipline come from? It comes from discipline. And you feel this urge to, yeah, I, I have this, this wussy part inside of me that I don't understand, which is why I call it wussy, and I just need to break it. Of course, this is anxiety. This is maybe stress from the day that I didn't manage very well. Places in my communication where I could have been more clear and I didn't really notice it at the time. But it accumulates even unconsciously as stress when I go to the gym and do legs. I just want to wuss out. And I think my will is irrational. Same thing with renunciation, right? Why do you have, let me move my face over here. Why do you have desires that need to be renounced? Where are these desires coming from that make you want to say, well, I got to renounce these? Well, because you see that some of your desires aren't going to be healthy for you. Right, You see that it's long-term, your desires aren't going to give you what you want. Now, I definitely relate with that because sometimes in, in my life, I mean, there's a lot of pain that I want to avoid. And what I think are my desires aren't really my desires. It's not really what I want. I can distinguish between, 
what I truly want and what I quote unquote want to cover up pain in my life, pain that I have yet to manage. And this is where my quote unquote desires come from. And I think, oh, I just need to renounce these. Yeah, I felt that way a bunch. I feel that way 12 times before breakfast. This lets me know I have emotional issues that I have yet to manage. So yes, I totally get where you're coming from, Schopenhauer, and by extension, Eastern mysticism, because it definitely feels that way. And you're right that it feels that way. Now, you're right in 1816, psychology was not as refined at this point. You didn't have my uh, emotional diagrams, unfortunately. So you fail to discriminate what these desires are. So from your perspective, you just had to renounce it, right? Similar with, you know, uh, my struggles with relationships, what I talked about. Like I, you know, for a while I thought, oh, I'm just not built for monogamy, right? And, and if you're rational, if your excuse or if your reason for not doing something or doing something makes you look cool, then you probably, probably, uh, it's probably a rationalization, right? Oh, I'm just not built for monogamy. No, you just don't know how to connect, dude. I'm talking to myself when I was 28, 29. I just don't know how to connect. Uh, and then you read out these books on evolutionary psychology that said, oh, you know, men are built to you know, only be in monogamous relationships for so long. We're built for serial monogamy. Eh, maybe that's true to some degree, but that doesn't preclude the fact that you don't know how to connect. You are unaware of your own emotions. And of course, I feel this now whenever I get into a disagreement with, you know, I mean, you get into a disagreement with your wife and it's objectively, you know, it's no big deal. You just want, oh, let's just give up. Let's just give up and get a divorce because then I don't have to deal with all those emotions. And it can look alluring. So you can say, oh, that's your will to get divorced, even though you know it's not going to be good and it's obviously not the right thing to do here in this context. That's your will. So you need to renounce your will. No, you don't need to renounce your will. What you need to do is understand where, where your will comes from and distinguish, get very clear, distinguish between increase in pleasure and avoidance of pain, which we can do. You know, when it comes to identification, you know, that's what we do in therapy, figure out why you have emotions and figure out how these emotions are your responsibility. That's what we can help clarify in therapy. Okay. So next we have Marx. 1818 18 to 1883. What does Marx say? Three points here. There's materialism, there's dialectical materialism, it should say there, and polylogism. Let's go into what these are and how we can relate. So materialism is atheism, this is rejection of free will. It's, it's really not only the rejection of free will that's part of it, but I think on a deeper level, it's the denial of the causal efficacy of thought. You can have thoughts, that's fine, but they don't actually matter. They don't actually mean anything in this materialist existence. And by, by materialism, I mean, I think it's implied there that I don't mean that the, the material world exists. Of course, the material world exists, but materialism, you turn it into an ism and it, and it says only the material world exists. Maybe thoughts exist in some degree, but they don't matter ultimately. And there's dialectical materialism, kind of the same thing. History is determined as well by economic forces. Okay, yeah, so you deny uh, free will, to denial the causal efficacy of thought. Then what's a cause here? Economic forces. 
you, you know, your political, your, your socioeconomic standing. That's what determines these things. That's what determines who you are, who you're going to be. You, you think you have free will, ha. And there's dialectical materialism, just applying materialism to the context of history. And then there's polylogism. You're, again, this is a, a variation of the above two. Your social class determines your consciousness. So how do we relate with this? Or how I relate, at least. Let me put my face down here. Okay, so materialism. Yeah, this is a whenever I feel stuck. You can't do anything. Like you try on with something and you and it doesn't feel like it's getting anywhere. And you just feel stuck and you want to rationalize it and say, oh, look at these forces. You know, this combines with dialectical materialism. You just feel small. Oh, yeah, there's these economic forces, you know, that that are that are influencing me. There's this huge maybe we wouldn't say that now so much in our everyday parlance, but we would say, oh, there's a deep state. There, there's these huge political forces at work. And, and who am I? You know, I am the victim of my historical circumstance, in a sense. Oh, let me go read about the Jekyll Island meeting and how they started the, start the, started the Federal Reserve. And this is why we have inflation, you can argue. And you may be right philosophically. But is that the full truth? No, the full truth is you've definitely felt like this. You, you can be an avowed anti-Marxist, but you felt that way before. I know you have because you are a human and we all feel stuck. We all feel small. We get, we wrap ourselves in self-pity and when we're smart, we look at for great excuses, you know, excuses that are very difficult to argue against. You, you need a, a very refined philosophical training, I would argue, to, to fully argue against uh, Marxism. Which is why it perpetuates, because not a lot of people do. People just go, oh, that's ridiculous, without identifying with it, without first going, oh, yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. And the polylogism, I mean, this is, okay, boomer. Oh, that's just your view because you're a boomer and you grew up, you know, oh, you want me to buy a house? Yeah, well, you grew up in a time when it was, you know, really profitable and, and a good financial decision to buy a house and pretty much anybody could do it who didn't graduate high school and now we can't. So you tell me about a house, that's just your, right? You have that belief based on your socioeconomic, based on your historical context. That is what has determined your consciousness. So I can't argue with you about that. I can only dismiss you with, okay, boomer, because the implication is we have different consciousness because, you know, I was born in the 80s while you were born in the 50s. And I think on another level, I think we can all relate to Marx because, you know, I, well, he, well, I would, okay, you don't have to, just, this is just food for thought. I think Christianity or the Abrahamic religions, they offer one kind of spiritual experience, a depth of meaning to life. But what they don't offer or offer very well is a breadth of meaning of, of this feeling of sunder, of being at one with humanity. And I think Marx, when when you look at it as a from a religious perspective, of course, which we do now, mostly because of Jung, though he doesn't get much credit for it. When we look at it from that perspective, then we can see, oh, what Marx is trying to do is is he feels disconnected, right? He feels stuck. He feels small. He looks at these factory workers and he says, look, there's nothing that they can do. And his way out of it is to propose this, this economic, this political system called Marxism, where 
we can all get along. We can all sing Kubaya, you know, do a, the drum circle thing. And this is what Marxism offers, this feeling, this feeling of being disconnected. So if you're, you, you know, you can't talk with your dad. If, if there are people in your life who you don't feel like you can communicate with it, boy, it can be really alluring to posit this uh, social economic system, political system called Marxism, in which at least the fantasy, all of that disconnection all goes away. All of that discomfort with your emotions and communicating because you don't know how to identify because you, you don't really know how emotions work. You can go to therapy for years now and, and nobody really tells you what emotions are or how they work. Oh yeah, Marxism. Marx was right. Because I think Marx ap approximates this feeling. And, and, you know, go read the Communist Manifesto. You know, I think that feeling comes across. Are they irrational? Are, are Marxists irrational? Well, yeah. And I can come up with great philosophical reasons. Okay, you you know, economic forces determine your consciousness. What determines economic forces? It just is. No, you're just, you're pushing the question back. Right? I mean, it's, it's the same thing with uh, nihilism or subjectivism. Oh, the only thing you know is that you don't know. Well, how can you possibly know that if you can't know anything else? On what basis can you say that you don't know? You, you completely wipe out your, your ability to, or, or the foundation of a solid epistemology. And then you, then you claim an ultimate truth, which is you don't know. You can't do that. That's logically inconsistent. But so what? Or polylogism. You know, we can say, okay, boomer. And, and the, the boomer's response could be, okay, millennial. Okay, zoomer. They're not any more correct or any more wrong than when we say, okay, boomer. They have the same philosophical standing. Like if somebody else's God says, this is what my God, or if somebody says, this is what my God says is true. And then your response is, this is what my God says is true. Well, that's why you have to have a war because there's no argument there. There's no basis for saying for, for any truth claim. If you just say, this is what God says, you're not actually answering the question. You're pushing it back. And this is what Marx does. He creates the same philosophical mistake, but it doesn't matter ultimately if we can't understand why he would make that mistake and why these beliefs would, would catch on and influence a lot of people. Now, if you just criticize the mom life comics as, oh, this is terrible drawing. That's not the point. Why did it catch on? Because people relate with it. People relate with it, and that is more important than figuring out what's true. I know that that's very difficult for somebody like me who's on the spectrum to get. But that's what humanity is. That's what we've always been. And it's not bad. It's not good. It simply is. You say, well, humanity shouldn't be that way. There's a host of other philosophical errors in simply saying that. You know, if, if, uh, if I had wheels, I'd be a wagon, right? And then, okay, 
let's just talk about Nietzsche here. Let's try to get through this. This is the same kind of thing, though. Yeah, these three ideas generally, there's, of course, more than three. Go, go look at my notes. But Apollo versus Dionysus, that was more towards the beginning of his career, but whatever. Then there's will to power and the Superman versus slaves idea. You know, a master morality versus the herd morality. Okay, so, yeah, there's two core human values. This is what Apollo and Dionysus says, reason and emotion, and they're ultimately in conflict. Really? You can't relate with that? Okay. Will the power, we develop ideas to dominate others. This is kind of similar to polylogism, but he goes to the next step. And then there's Superman versus slaves. We just have genetic predisposition to be a certain way, and there's nothing we can do about it. You know, a lot of overlap here with Marxism relating, even though philosophically they are different and they come from a different epistemology, Marx and Nietzsche. Uh, emotionally, it's the same thing. Okay, so Apollo versus Dionysus. Yeah, whenever I have a neurosis, this is what I feel. There's some conflict between my, my rationality and my emotion. I just have to turn off my emotion. This is what stoicism accepts and teaches you to do, which is why it's ultimately a dead end. You don't learn where the emotion is and what the emotion is ultimately saying. I feel like that all the time, of course. Will the power... Uh, oh, you just believe that because it, it would be more... Uh, it would be better for you if you lived in a society where people had that belief. Yeah, this is what I do when I'm scrolling through Twitter, you know, in my self-righteousness payoff, and I just want to dismiss huge swaths of people. Oh, there's anxiety that comes up with being alive and living in a pluralistic society. Or I could just dismiss them with, oh, you just think that, you know, similar with polylogism. And Superman versus slaves, yeah. We're genetically predisposed, and look, you, you lowly Christian, you come from a long lineage of people who were infected with a herd morality, so you are necessarily going to be a part of a herd. All you can ultimately do is, in a sense, is try to make it less likely for your children to be, you know, to, to succumb to a herd morality. You, you know, you're just this conveyor belt, you know, you're not the master of anything. You're you're simply um, an, an electron in this huge circuit board. Uh, well, yeah, this is a great thing to, to feel whenever you feel insecure at a bar and some other guys are getting all the attention. Oh, it's genetic predisposition. There's nothing I can do. Ultimately, what what that means for me is this is an excuse I tell myself so I don't have to engage with other people. So I don't, have to talk, I don't have to talk to girls. Because if I go talk to girls, then I'm going to learn more about myself. And there's parts of myself I want to hide from. So in a way, it's obviously not helpful to me to, for me when I say, oh, there's just genetic predisposition. Some guys have, have quote-unquote, it, and some guys don't. doesn't help me. But in the moment, it makes me feel safe and comforted. Not necessarily good, but so what? At least I get to hide. At least I give myself a good ex reason, a good, a good excuse to hide. And of course, this the genetic predisposition thing when he talks about the herd mass morality. I mean, what he's talking about in a sense is what we would now call generational trauma, which is, he says something very true psychologically about how we manage generational trauma. You have inherited issues from your parents, issues that they have yet to manage. And you are going to do the same to your children. You're going to pass on these issues to your children. That's what's going to happen. We're, we're not going to be masters of these emotions, right? I mean, that's what I say about emotions is your emotions have been around for, you know, before you were born and they're going to be here after you die. After you die. All you are at best is a caretaker of these issues. 
So you take the issues that your parents handed you, that society handed you, that, that you were very much groomed. You know, I, I think that's why, I mean, obviously there's pedophilia that, that definitely exists. Um, but, but I think people make a huge deal about it because psychologically we all feel this way. We all feel like we were groomed and it's true. And yeah, you have a kid and you groom them in a sense. And grooming just means, I mean, not sexual grooming, of course, but it just means you are instilling them with values that they don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the psychological, mental, intellectual resources to deal with. So they just accept whatever you give them. My daughter has no choice but to love me. She can't choose that. We're all groomed. It's just acknowledging that it happens and understanding how you were groomed, understanding how you accepted things unconsciously. Maybe one of those things is, is um, emotion and reason are always uh, dichotomous and you just have to suppress. If you, if you want to be rational, you just got to suppress reason or excuse me, express emotion so you can be more reasonable. Right. And now maybe there's nothing you can do to fully overcome that. But you can take it and manage your own emotions and work with that. So you can see, oh, maybe when I start to decode my emotional impulses, maybe I can start to distinguish where they come from. Maybe I can look at the whys. Maybe I can look at how it's my responsibility. Yeah, I can look at how my dad caused this, how it's quote unquote his fault, not my fault. But now I'm an adult. I can, you know, decode this to some degree so I can see how it's my responsibility. Here's this emotional issue that I'm going to pass on to my children. I'm not the master of it, but I am its caretaker. I have some influence over it. And of course, we can revert back to, oh, I'm just predisposed. You know, I was groomed by my dad. I'm groomed by my culture. You can do the Marx thing, which can feel real. And it's important to recognize that it feels real. Even though you may be an avowed anti-Marxist, you still feel that way. Don't deny that you don't because you just perpetuate the problem, right? To go back to Jung, the solution is in the problem. The, the problem, the answer to the neurosis is in the neurosis itself. We have this rich trough of nutrition. Well, it looks like poison. When you have a philosophical lens, it looks like poison. 19th century philosophy, it's this trough of poison when you have a philosophical lens. But we just switch that out for a psychological lens, like you're getting an eye test. Oh, it's clear all of a sudden. Switch that out for a psychological lens and we go, wow, there's a lot of nutrition here. There's not only a lot of nutrition here with Schopenhauer, Marx, and Nietzsche, but there's nutrition with uh, mom comics. So let's just go through these. You know, this is another, uh, not a question, but just a, a listener requested that I go through these and give my take. So, Given everything I said, I don't think it would be right to go through these without telling you exactly where I'm coming from. The first 54 minutes here, this is where I'm coming from. Given that, now let's look at mom comics. Let me move my face here. All right, so if you're just listening, this comic says, one of the many, in brackets, differences between me and my husband, I think this is the most popular one, the woman, she looks at the peach and goes, oh, look, the last ripe peach, 
I'll save it for the kids. They love peaches so much. And my husband, oh look, the last ripe peach. I'll use it as a special treat in my daily smoothie. Now, what's the mom feeling here? But by the way, we'll get to it. Uh, this is a, a great loving relationship. This mom, she, this woman, she loves her husband. She says as much. Now, what's she feeling? I'm sure this may have happened, but what's she feeling? She is feeling like she sacrifices for the family and her husband doesn't. Now, where does this come from? You know, my intuition says she may have some attachment issues. She may have some difficulty with communication. Maybe she feels like she can communicate with her husband about, you know, I feel like I'm the one who sacrifices and you don't, even though she admits that he pays all the bills and, you know, does a lot of, for the family. She feels insecure. That's what this is. She feels insecure in this relationship. She doesn't feel like he has her back. Like he gets where she's coming from. And this isn't just my projection. She says as much. I mean, we'll get to it here. Right. So you can look at, oh, what's the big deal? You know, this guy, he, he provides for you. He, he's loving. He does all this great stuff. Just give him the peach. Okay. Yeah. And I think she would even admit that. But also she feels like she just doesn't get what I go through. Maybe she feels like she can't communicate. Uh, of course, it's her responsibility as an adult. I don't want to infantilize her as a woman uh, because she's a woman. Dangling a modifier there. I don't want to infantilize her just because she's, she's a woman. You know, she has a role to play in this too, but, you know, there's that saying, it takes two to tango, which is true a lot. Uh, can't do jujitsu by yourself. But forming secure attachments, managing your emotions, it doesn't take two to tango. You do it. And if you're in a relationship with somebody and they're not playing along to the way that you want, that's fine. You don't have to be in a relationship with them. But don't say it takes two to tango when you're dealing with attachments because essentially what you do is you put somebody else's response or somebody else's ability to manage their emotions as a cause of how well you can manage your emotions. Okay, to make this more sense, let's go to a different one. I think this is a great one. This is her bringing in the groceries or the difference between her and her husband bringing in the groceries from the car. Here's her husband who brings in one bag and here's her who brings in when well, she has eight there. Which, of course, that there's no way that this is objectively true because every husband who brings in groceries from the car, that's the challenge. You got to do it all in one trip and you can't leave the trunk open. That's cheating. You can't open the door beforehand. That's cheating. You have to get all the bags in one trip and this is like a fun challenge that all men do. So there's no way that this is objectively true. doesn't matter. She feels like this is true. She feels like she is, in a sense, carrying the baggage of the relationship baggage it's a great it's a great metaphor and, and it can't be overused i mean it was super cheesy in the darjeeling limited when at the end of the movie they dropped all their baggage and to, that's what allowed them to get on their train it's so cheesy but it's true it works because it's it's so psychologically true and we all get it like at the end of fury you know great world war ii movie i just saw a couple weeks ago there's some cheesy parts in there like, hey, I'm going to stand and fight these guys. You, you do what you want, but I got to make my stand. Nobody else wants to. Super cheesy, but you have to put it in there because it's psychologically true on so many levels. 
that I no one presentation could possibly go into all of them. No one book. In fact, you could look at you could look at the the entire uh, canon of psychology, every syllable written about psychology since 1851 or whenever went into his lab and it was hooking up electrodes to people's brains. Every syllable of psychology tries to explain those kinds of scenes. When the leader of the gang says, "I'm st- I'm making my stand." People, everybody else in the gang doesn't want to, and they then they may slowly want to, and you know the guy who you least suspect stands up second. The guy who you least suspect stands up second. Oh, there's some noise going on there. Maybe some some guys wuss out. Man, that says everything. So it says everything that she feels like she's carrying around baggage. Now, what I think is going on here. This is me reading between the lines and. We'll get to it when we when we talk about her explanation. What I think is going on here is she just doesn't feel secure in this relationship. Uh, you know, on the surface, this guy provides everything. I guess he's a lawyer and he does well, and I think he has another job too. Uh, I think they live. I think they live in Cape Cod, which I don't think you can be uh, poor and live on Cape Cod. Maybe you can. I don't know. I've never been there, but I think it's this nice place to live. They, they must have a nice home and they must do well. Doesn't matter. She doesn't feel safe. Maybe she doesn't feel like he would be able to fight for her. Maybe there's that feeling. Maybe he has some boundary issues. Maybe he has some codependent issues. We know he's on his phone a lot. At least she feels like he's on his phone a lot. Maybe that's part of the issue. Maybe he's a disconnected guy. And she doesn't have the, the intellectual wherewithal to discuss that. To say, oh, I feel insecure. Maybe she's more uh, sensuous, as women tend to be, and she she imagines it as her needing to bring in a bunch of baggage from a bunch of the groceries while he just brings in one. This comic, here's Fun Dad, he brings home fast food, and he's fun. She brings home fast food, and she's lazy. This is about uh, patriarchal expectations, whatever. And, of course, we can criticize that philosophically, but psychologically, this is what she feels is going on. She feels like there's a lot of pressure on her to keep this family together, and the guy doesn't do his part. And she's right. I don't think she's right about this exact thing, but... I I would imagine that there is something going on here. And maybe it's nothing about the relationship. Maybe she comes from a dysfunctional family and she just never learned how to relate with people. She never learned how to truly feel a a connection with other people. It could be that, you know, that's just a guess, but it it doesn't matter what it is. The point is we have to relate. Have we ever been in a situation where where we felt like there is a double standard? Of course. Every men's rights activist ever. That's the irony. That's the paradox is the men's rights activists can relate because they do the same. They make the same arguments that the, this feminist this is a feminist argument about the patriarchy. They would make the same argument except the matriarchy and they think they're different. No, psychologically, you're the same. And if you don't get that, you need to really distinguish between philosophy and psychology. And it's not your fault that you haven't distinguished well between those two because people don't. 
The psychologist you listen to is Jordan Peterson, and he does a terrible job of distinguishing between philosophy and psychology. He doesn't know the difference perceptively. My husband working out at home, you know, he does it on his own, and uh, and me working out at home. Oh, there's kids around me. Oh, it's a big mess. What, are you complaining that your kids love you? No, of course she's not complaining about that. She says as much in one of her posts. She's like, yeah, I have a loving family, but th this is just something that I, I feel. I feel distress from this. So we can intuit, right? We, we can identify. We can assume what she's feeling and talk about how we feel the same thing. Have we ever been in a situation? Come on. Have we ever been in a situation where we're surrounded by love and things are going well and we still don't, we still feel like there's something missing? Feel like something's wrong. You know, you, you ever make a lot of money or, or have a success and, and you think, man, this is what I wanted. I'm sure this is what she wants to some degree, but there, there's something missing that there's some level of security. There's some level of a psychological foundation that I'm missing. That it, that it feels, it doesn't feel like love necessarily when my kids want to hound me when I'm working out. It feels overwhelming. Of course you felt like that. Right? I mean, this is the issue with, I mean, not depression, yeah, but just psychological issues in general. And this goes back to what I was talking about, why we're in this predicament in the first place, because... We are in, we, we live in such affluence. Yeah, any wars that we have, they get aggravated like World War One and World War II, but, but, but any good feeling, or, or excuse me, any negative feeling we have gets aggravated. Because, man, I, I, I've, I'm still sad. I have this great family. I live in this great house. I have this great life. I have this great career. But I'm still sad still get depressed and now you feel even more depressed because you're depressed over the fact that you're depressed you shouldn't i shouldn't be feeling this way i'm sure that's part of her struggle here i'm surrounded by my children who i love i have a perceptively supportive husband at least financially supportive there's still something missing what's going on it, it, it's fascinating to me because everybody out there who doesn't like feminism who says, oh, feminism is this cancer on humanity. They respond to these mom comics by saying, oh, look, you're privileged. You live in Cape Cod. Oh, oh, what, you're upset that your family loves you? Oh, how terrible. You have two children who love you. You live in an affluent part of the country. Oh, oh, poor baby. Your husband cooks all the meals, which she says, as she admits. And, oh, your husband supports you. Oh, poor baby. Yeah, that's what caused feminism. Get it? You're perpetuating the issue. No, you don't get it. Because I'm, what I'm talking about here is something that nobody talks about in our, in our, barely anybody talks about in our culture. It comes up every once in a while. Barely anybody talks about, but it's vital. And it's vital not only for understanding why something like feminism would happen or why something like the men's right activism would happen, but understanding your own feeling of alienation, your own feeling of disconnection. Because if you don't do this, then you must necessarily go to Marx or something like Marx, somebody who preaches alienation. That's one of Marx's points you probably know I, I didn't talk about, but 
I didn't have to. Because obviously somebody who subscribes to something like polylogism, oh, you just think that because of your socioeconomic class, of course that person feels alienated because you can't talk to people. Because your your uh, way of relating with other people is is explaining away what they believe. You say, okay, boomer. I mean, which is funny. But is that what's going on? Right? You perpetuate the issue and you perpetuate your own sense of alienation. You cannot grow psychologically to the extent that you want unless you can do the identification thing well. It's easy and it's fun to go on Twitter and just make snarky comments about mom life comics. Comments about mom life comics, excuse me. You perpetuate the issue. You're living in a culture where people's uh, where people split up their families over whether somebody got a medical treatment versus whether somebody didn't. Say it out loud. That is a tragedy. And that is a tragedy like dogs are stupid. It is a tragedy. All right, one more. Snow Day Fantasy again. I don't know, same thing. I guess I didn't need this example. Oh, I guess I put this in this in this example because, right, what is being on the phone or husband's on the phone? What's that uh, a symbol of? Disconnection. Emotionally tuned out. So I, I can reasonably say that she writes these comics and a lot of women uh, relate because that this is how you feel when your husband's emotionally tuned out. You can live in Cape Cod and have a three-car garage and whatever, 5,000 square feet, whatever you think is fancy. But if your husband's tuned out, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's our job to relate with her. Yeah, it's her job to relate to, but it doesn't take two to tango. If you're sitting around waiting for her to do it, that is another indication of the attachment disorder, of the alienation. And here she says as much, right? Uh, let me just read this if you're listening. The community that we have built here is about making each other feel seen and less alone in the challenging parts of motherhood. You see that? Now, I didn't read that and think that's what she must felt. I looked at these and I said, yeah, that's probably what's going on. She feels like her husband is emotionally tuned out. And then I read this. This is a, I, this is a screenshot from her Instagram. Doesn't feel seen. She feels alone. And the challenge is a motherhood. Now, maybe her husband gets it, but maybe her husband's tuned out and doesn't know how to communicate, you know, whatever. I don't go on and on about the amazing parts of being a wife and mother because among us moms, those are of given. Of course they're given. Right? So when, when you respond and say, oh, what, what, you're upset that your children love you? You're talking past each other. You're talking, you, you talk, you make that comment to make yourself feel right. You make that comment because you're insecure. That goes back to identification. Why? Get honest about the why. Just say it. I feel insecure. I feel insecure, so I need to make her wrong. That's what's going on. Be honest about it. Right? That's like what I say uh, about stubbornness. 
Guys love to say that they're stubborn. Oh, I got a strong ego. Just say it. You're insecure. You don't want to look wrong or stupid. Because you feel if you look wrong or stupid, people will leave you. Nobody will want to be around you. Just say it. Be honest. Yeah, so she doesn't go on about the amazing parts of being a wife and mother because among us moms, those are a given. Of course we love our children and our husbands. More than we could ever put into words. Of course we wouldn't trade our lives for anything in the world. And yet, many of us also feel unsupported, unseen, and or unappreciated. By society, by our partners. What is she talking about here? Based on my experience, based on how I view this, she is talking about... She has anxious attachment. She doesn't know how to connect properly because she doesn't know what emotions are and how to talk through them in a helpful way. She doesn't know because nobody teaches her and she probably goes to some $400 an hour therapist who just holds space and validates her. Yes, I understand you feel that way and that's a great first step, but that's only a step. We got to get more clear about what's going on. And it starts with identification. It starts with first understanding our emotions and how they work. Oh yeah, and one more slide here. You know, I, I was been in a, in a World War II movie binge. Love it. And I, I just thought that this scene from Patton where he slaps the soldier, uh, it's a famous scene. I guess Patton really did this or we don't know for sure, but it's uh, alleged maybe that he did this. He slapped a soldier. At least how it's portrayed in this movie is he slaps a soldier for having battle fatigue. What was called PTSD. Shell shock. All these different words for it. But they, they called it battle fatigue in World War II, I think, predominantly. And that's what it's called in this scene. He's so frustrated. He's so frustrated with this soldier for being a weak coward. He can't get through that he hits him. And it's fun. And it's fun to lionize guys like Patton and say, man, you know, it's these guys who got us through World War II. You know, we needed tough men like Patton. Men were tougher in those days. And there may, I don't know, there may be some truth to that, but can't we also see that in this scene, as funny as it is, and as much as we like laughing at the guy who has battle fatigue, I was laughing at him too when I watched it. It's funny. Can't we see how, okay, this movie came out in 1970. We're talking about feminism here with Mom Life Comics. Can't we see how Patton's failure to connect, to understand how he actually has the same issue that the guy who has battle fatigue has. They have the same issue. There's something going on in this guy and he doesn't understand it, but he can't move. He can't face battle again. He is, hit, he is hitting his head against a brick wall. Nobody wants to disappoint their, you know, their fellow troops. Nobody wants to be a coward. Nobody wants to be weak. But something happens that we don't understand. We just hit this, this petrified part of our unconscious. And Patton feels the same way, which is why he feels the need to be violent. He's frustrated. He's frustrated because he's hitting a similar brick wall. His brick wall, his petrified part of his unconscious is he can't communicate. He doesn't have the emotional resources to communicate with this guy. So he hits him. This guy doesn't have the emotional resources to communicate with himself. So he, he cries. He just shuts down. 
does Padden want to hit the guy? Well, maybe part of him does, but mostly he doesn't want to hit the guy. He knows he's not supposed to. He knows you don't hit your soldiers, right? As Grandpa says in in, um, in the Simpsons episode, man, what's it called from season one? Bart becomes the Bart's army, Bart, Bart the general. And Bart hits the guy, hits the soldier, and, and Grandpa says, you can send them in the battle, you can send them off to die, you can send them off to a sure death, you can use them in Operation Human Shield, essentially, but you can't hit them. For whatever reason, you can't hit them. No anima integration. Now, let me just sum up the entire freaking presentation by saying no anima integration. Check out my anima integration video. And I'll leave it there. Thank you, guys. Check out my book, animusempire.com slash book, if you want to know where these emotional diagrams come from and if you're interested in therapy or just will like help on the next right step for you, animusempire.com slash schedule. All right, thank you guys. And I wish you all the joy and all the pain that comes from identification, that comes from connection with other people.